Hello, and welcome to another episode of the Christian Reed Podcast. Today's guest is a podcaster and food and beverage critic all the way from Columbus, Ohio. His name is Ray Chimilecki. Close. Yeah, we say ah. Shimilecki. Uh, that's pretty close. That's pretty close. <laughs> that's, it's way better than probably 95% of people would, uh, would come up with. Shimilecki. Okay. All right. I don't always get the names right, but you know, I, tr- I tried. I tried. I did my best. It's a, it's a tough one. And then also, I mean, we're not even sure we say it right. It's, it's a Polish last name, but uh-huh. um, okay. I mean, we probably say it like the Americanized way. So there's probably like, I have yet to meet anybody who's, you know, from Poland. So when I do, I will ask them, how do you say this? And I'm sure it's going to be completely different than the way we've, we've been doing it for years, but. Well, that's interesting. So you've got Polish descent. What was that on your mother, your parents' side or? or yeah, my about? dad's side. Uh, I think it's probably goes back to, it's either his grandfather or his great grandfather. Um, whenever they immigrated over to the u.s but yeah mostly polish and then there's like some german and slavic and czech and all that kind of stuff mixed into as well but majority of it is is polish on my dad's side it sounds like your family moved um sort of in the early 20th century to uh to the u.s is maybe that right or maybe yeah, earlier? i think so it's, it's somewhere around there okay. um yeah I, I think it was probably during when all, all the immigration was happening, um, even with like, you know, you have the Irish immigration and all that stuff. So I think it's kind of in that time frame. I don't, I don't really know for certain. I think, uh, I mean, I'm trying to remember if any family members have had to do like a family tree project on that side. And I just can't think of anything. So enough, man. Well, it's, it's always cool to know, know your heritage, isn't it? I think my mom's done some, some tracing of ours and it's, kind of boring to be honest on my dad's side there's a bit of french a bit of irish but on my mum's side it's like our family just never went anywhere or did anything it's like Duh! okay i don't know i mean in my in my family so far the only people that have traveled are myself and uh, i believe my great grandparents as well they were cool they were like an old couple that would like go to places like japan like they went to japan in like their 70s man i was like that's awesome but um, but yeah, the rest of my family just never really goes anywhere. You know, they do the standard uh, package holidays to France and Spain. And okay, yeah, I, I know that makes me sound a bit judgmental, but like, it, I don't know. I just, there's a whole world out there, you know what I mean? And sometimes I, I get a bit puzzled about a holiday, which is literally just two weeks on a beach at a resort with a bunch of people from your own country. That That will always blow my mind a little bit because... For me, I don't know, I, I like to, when I go to another country, I like to, as much as possible, immerse myself in the local culture, you know, speak the language, do whatever, um, try and get the most out of it, you know, get a different experience from, from what, what you have back home, I suppose. But Yeah, I've never been an all-inclusive kind of person, like cruises, I don't understand people that do cruises. I get, I get people like them, and, and that's great for me, I have zero interest. I think the only way you'd get me on a cruise, it'd have to be like you know, Alaska or like Antarctica or something like that, you know, something like super, super unique where like, I'm not going to go on a cruise in the Bahamas. Like I have no interest in ever doing that. So, you know, I've never been on a cruise either. And I was in- interested in going on one potentially, but then I, I watched this video the other day by that. There's this guy. Um, I find, I found him recently. I highly recommend you check him out uh, and everyone listening, go check this guy out um, on YouTube. There's a guy called ordinary things. He's a British guy that basically does very kind of like sarcastic Charlie Brooker-esque kind of videos where he, he just talks about anything, anything from like uh, the popularity, rise and fall of fedora hats or uh, the, the, the death of Ronald McDonald or, you know, um, what else is it? Uh, the so- soda, like, you know, the Coca-Cola and soda. And, and he, he did one on uh, cruise ships. And it just put the fear of God on me. I never realized that even pre-COVID, um, cruise ships like is one of the hotspots for catching diseases and stuff. And what diseases, but like illnesses. Um, and they actually have like these massive banners and advertisements when you're on the ships that say like, oh, wash your hands, wash your hands all the time. You know what I mean? And, and like, because people just often get, you know, and it, I suppose it makes sense. You're out at sea, you know, you're stuck with a bunch of people and, you know, you're probably prone to getting things like flu and 
Um, and, but it's just disgusting, like this idea that people don't wash their hands or, or take care of their personal hygiene and stuff. And, and you're essentially like in a, a small container where you're literally contained with these people. <laughs> in, in it's a like disease- a petri dish, essentially. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's like, oh my god. But um, yeah, and then and then I also saw some um, some small videos showing like you know, the difference between what's sold to you maybe in the travel brochure and then the reality. So obviously in the travel brochures, you see, oh, look, these lovely deckings and, you know, you're, you're in the sun and you're on a stretcher by the, by the water and it's all lovely and there's barely anyone around. But the reality is there's like 200 people in the same area and it's packed and you could barely move. Like, I don't know, that's my idea of a fucking nightmare right there. <laughs> like just, yeah. Oh, <laughs> I want to get as far away from people as possible if I'm on holiday. <laughs> no. Yeah, when you travel, I mean, yeah, I mean, you want to do something unique and something that you enjoy. I mean, I understand the people that enjoy cruises and, and I get it because it's just, you know, I pay you money and I don't have to think about the rest of it. But for me personally, that's just not the way I want to travel. And I mean, I would never recommend it to everybody, but to each their own, I guess, kind of on that front. What's your favorite type mm-hmm. of holiday? Man, I mean, I wish that we had here in America just better, uh, better vacation time. I mean, we don't get like you guys get the, you know, over in Europe and stuff. They get the, the month of August off and and stuff like that. We don't get that here. But I mean, for us, it's always just you know we build we build around just kind of restaurants that we go to. Um, it's kind of how we build our trip. So it's like, where do we want to go eat? Can we find four or five places that we want to go eat? And we just kind of build everything you know around that. You mentioned getting off the month of August. I'm, I'm a bit uh, confused by by what you mean there. Because, I, I mean, I don't know. I, I can't speak for other countries. I can speak for the UK. We have a system here, which is basically uh, 28 days paid holiday. Mm-hmm. But what that actually looks like is probably about 21 days of actual holiday time. And the remaining seven days, they basically cheat you. The remaining seven days are uh, what we call bank holidays here. So like, you know, traditionally the actual banks would be shut and they are, but most shops tend to be shut and businesses on those days. Um, And that's the same every Sunday after a certain time here in the UK as well. But it's a bit of a cheat because bank holidays are not, I mean, they are holidays in the sense that they'll always fall on like a Monday or very rarely on a Friday or whatever. Mm-hmm. But um, everything's shut. So it's like, well, okay, it's a holiday, but you can't do anything, really. You gotcha. I mean? <laughs> yeah. So like when they're selling that to you in the, in the job interview, like, yeah, you get 28 days paid holiday. And it's like, well, no, you don't. Do you? you get 20 days paid holiday and these extra days that you include to make it look like you know make, make yourselves look good but it's it's not the same thing so i just wanted to probe you on that what, what do you mean by that well usually it's a, i think it's mainly like spain right like spain france those countries they, they're pretty much off I, I know spain specifically is pretty much off like a lot of people take vacation pretty much in august and kind of like the whole country not shuts uh, down okay but like a lot of people that's kind of when they take vacation and it just you know with spain i mean you have like the the siesta in the middle of the day and everything like that you know america is probably one of the worst in terms of work-life balance and, and time off and everything like that i remember it was a couple of years ago uh cadillac ran like a commercial i don't remember if it was like in a super bowl or whatever but the whole concept of the commercial was just like we work way more than everybody else so like you could have a Cadillac kind of thing. It was really strange and you can find it probably like on YouTube. Uh, the actor who was in it, um, he's like a character actor. Uh, I think his name's like Neil something. Um, he's in a bunch of stuff like Band of Brothers. He was in there. He's usually like kind of a character actor, kind of villain guy, a really good actor though. But but it was just, there was some backlash when that came out. That was a couple of years ago. And, and I think with COVID and everything, it's just gotten way worse with now we're having people you know there's this whole kind of people trying to figure out are people not willing to go back to work because the jobs that they were working sucked with in terms of you know benefits and pay and and work-life balance or you know they're not incentivized to to return or is it those industries that a lot of people were already in they decided i don't want to go back to that industry because this happened once it can happen again there's no stability all that kind of stuff too as well so yeah, this is an interesting conversation. Um, 
I've seen the same sort of conversations occurring in the UK right now. Um, there's a YouTuber that I follow called Joshua Fluke, who talks a lot about this. Um, I think he's based in Utah or something like that. Um, but he's constantly commenting on basically a combination of employers on LinkedIn that have a very skewed kind of perception of how things should be. And then what the media in, in the US is saying, and it seems to be the prevailing thought is this big argument between, as you said, like remote working and, and what actual benefits are workers offered and stuff. And we have the same arguments here. And all I can see from a lot of the major companies and, and uh, businesses is that they're trying to put forward this narrative of who, well, remote working is, is not efficient. It's not efficient. It's, it's, it's bad for business. And it's like, well, actually the statistics prove otherwise. And uh, maybe, maybe you need to give this to people or maybe they, they should just leave. Cause you know what? And then, and then there's a lot of these companies have the audacity. A lot of them are run by boomers. Sorry to be derogatory here, but like, you know, they run by like a guy and he's like 60, 70s who tries to tell, his workforce like yeah you know actually it's very important that you that you come to the office and, and you compose yourself in this manner and you know, they try and tell you oh you know you need to commit yourself to work and you can't be having a life outside of work work is your life blah 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 and it's like uh no uh go fuck yourself i'll find myself a job where they'll give me what i want and and and, and do you know what and more to the point it's not really an unreasonable thing to ask for remote working. I mean, the, the word that I keep hearing is um, the hybrid option, which I think is sensible. Do you know what I mean? Give, give people say, like I used to do this when I, when I lived in Estonia and Europe, I, I'd work like three days a week in the office and typically I'd have two days at home or one day at least at home. And you could work your life around that and agree on it and stuff. And you know, I think it's very good for, especially for people with families, that get like unexpected kind of situations where they got to like, I don't know, pick up their kids randomly or something happens. Do you know what I mean? You can take advantage of that, uh, that option. It's, it's an extra incentive, which doesn't affect businesses. Like I haven't seen anything out there that suggested that remote working has been anything other than, than productive. Um, but what were your thoughts on that? So yeah, we, I mean, there's been some new developments too um, with like Apple, you know, Apple, I think originally their campus out in Palo Alto here in California, they said that most people are going to be able to work remote and they're walking that back and people are threatening to quit. But then there was also something that came out, I think from Iceland that they did a kind of a pilot program and had everybody work like four days mm. uh, instead of five. And it was like 36 hours kind of a week and per, you know, production efficiency didn't fall off or anything like that. So it is kind of this big debate. And here, at least, I think that's a lot of big corporations were just, as corporations do, we're just trying to say the right things during the pandemic. So people, you know, didn't have any backlash against their companies. And now that we're kind of coming out of the pandemic, or at least there's less restrictions and everything. I mean, the virus is still around, but now all those companies are kind of walking back all their promises. And I think they realized they, a lot of these companies own their own building or, you know, are leasing these spaces and office towers. The landlord's not going to let them get out of the lease because they're not going to have anybody else to put in that lease. So the landlord's going to lose money. So they don't want to do that. And the companies that own their own building, if they let everybody work remote out of that building, then they just have an empty, empty office building that they're paying for. And I think that's the core issue that does not get covered is just the companies don't want to lose money. And so they're like, yep, everybody needs to be in the office because it's more efficient and it really isn't, but they're just not willing to eat that sunk cost of having this office building, just sit there. Yeah. I mean, vacant uh, or try and sell the office building for, you know, they wouldn't make as much profit or loss. Yeah, hundred percent. I agree with you, especially about the sunk costs. And, and I mean, I, like I remember when I was in Estonia, there was this business I worked for, right? And they already had like this flashy office, um, but it wasn't like the best office ever. But it was functional. It did. It was fit for purpose. And they chose to move us to like the most expensive building. And you know, it, the whole thing was a giant flex. It was like, look at us with all our money. Look at all this stuff that we can show off and put on yeah. Instagram and make us look like we're a million bucks. And it's, I'm just, I'm sitting there thinking like, this is a waste of money. Like you're a business, you're trying to make money. And it's like, I don't know if I was a business owner, like 
I would spend money where I need to make, uh, where I need to spend. I wouldn't be cheap, but I wouldn't spend extravagantly and try and, you know, show off or, or, or even care. Like, cause a lot of the time with these businesses, they're closed off. They're not always open to the public per se. Do you know what I mean? Like, unless right. you have like occasional sales meetings or whatever, like, generally speaking, the, the only physical spaces you need for people are like people that are in sales, uh, it, uh, you know, slash programming. And then after that, I mean, I mean, geez, even programmers can work from home, to be honest. Uh, most, yeah, most, they're the right setup. Yeah. And actually, no, I, I could take it back. Even, even salespeople, that's been proven. There's, there's been entire companies, sales companies that have managed to still operate from home. Like we're sort of shifting towards internet only based uh, solutions, what with like VOIP services and uh, on, on a corporate level and, and, and such. So, I mean, there really aren't any excuses anymore. And I think that's making those big companies panic. Like you say that they're panicking about those sunk costs. They're panicking about, Oh, what do we do? How do we get out of this situation? And they're trying to propose something that is illogical and irrational. And I think that's where the problem is. They're trying to find ways to justify keeping the office. But I really do feel like this is the death of the office, to be honest. But um, yeah, I mean, it all kind of, you can trace a lot of it back to like, uh, it was like the mid 2000s when Google kind of came on the scene. Right. And when they opened like their campus, it was like, we have a dry cleaner here. We have the, you know, we have all this stuff here. Their whole concept was to basically keep the worker there as long as they could without leaving the campus. If we have all these utilities here for them, they'll be here longer and they'll work more and be more productive. And that is, you're just trying to kind of break that mentality and that cycle. And, and this is, you know, just what we're seeing is just people button heads with corporations now. And I, I don't know where it goes. It'll be interesting to see if, you know, the Apple workers actually decide to quit and force Apple's hand or, or that'll be interesting to see kind of what happens. It's like a that. giant cult, man. I, I've never understood that. Like, I don't get me wrong. I understand if you're young, you know, you've got no responsibilities, you, you're really invested in your career and you're excited about it. I get that. You can do it for a couple of years, whatever. Right. But like most people have a life outside of, of, of work, you know, work is work. You know, I mean, there are people obviously that love their jobs and, and props to them. You know, I understand I'm a bit of a workaholic myself, but you got to have time to, to do other stuff. Like it's not just about ha having like a healthy balance between work and, and play, but it's also just, I think it's good for your mind and your body and everything to get out of that space and do something different. Like I don't think it's ever healthy to do anything too much. You know, for instance, spend too much time around a particular person, spend too much time at work, spend too much time not doing work, you know, like yeah. uh, everything in moderation, so to speak. But yeah, those places just seem like hell holes to me. I, I don't know. Yeah. There's a weird thing with here, especially here in America. I'm not sure how much it is like over there, but people identify with their job. So like when you first meet somebody, right? Usually one of the first two or three questions you're going to get is what do you do? And so it's not, and, and so people kind of identify with, Oh, I'm in, I'm a salesperson or I'm a pharmaceutical rep or whatever, where it should be, you know, and this goes to kind of like minimalism and stuff. Like it's, you should be asking somebody like, what are you passionate about? Yes. Right? It's really tough to like break that, like, kind of Q and a, like when you first meet somebody, cause you always kind of default back to like, well, I've always been trained to ask like, what do you do? But I don't care what you do. You don't care what I do. Like, it doesn't matter. You know what I mean? Like, unless you're at like a business, like networking event, like, I don't care that you're, you know, uh, a rep for, you know, whatever or machinery company, like, okay. Like, I, I don't really care about that. Like what, but what do you like actually like to do in your off time? Like that's yeah. more where do you like to travel and, and stuff like that? I agree with you, but I do think it's contextual. Cause like in that scenario that you just laid out, when you're at one of those networking where events, like you're probably, you probably didn't want to go there in the first place. You just have to, you know, you, you, you know, the, the your sales manager was like, yeah, you know, this is a great opportunity to find new clients, blah, blah, blah. So you're there and you're bumping around. You're like, yeah, uh, nice to meet you. Yeah. Go fuck yourself. I don't care. Um, so yeah. And, and then, yeah, I, I get that. You're just in another place with a bunch of other people that you don't give a shit about. And you're just, flexing on each other essentially like yeah you know i work sales at this company and this is how much we're projected to make and blah 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 and it's like 
okay. But I think like in other contexts, like if you're out with your buddies, you're having drinks and, and you're asking and that question comes up, it's not as bad. Although I do agree with what you're saying. I think it's, and I've changed this recently. I, my first question tends to be what you're passionate about. Cause I think that is, as you said, more engaging, but that's more interesting. But I do think it's contextual. Sometimes asking people about their jobs is interesting. But I think only if you really mean it, like if you really actually right, yeah. know. Yeah, because a lot of the time, as you said, it's that typical, oh, how much are you earning? And oh, what kind of car do you drive? And it's like, all right, was this fucking capitalism Q&A? Like, <laughs> fucking hell. <laughs> yeah, for sure. It's the world we live in, but still, man. Yeah. All right. So we've had we've had a little bit of a chat. We've we've got we've, we've we're comfortable now. Um, let's 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 talk about you. So you run a podcast and a website under the name Spoon Mob, which reviews chefs, sommeliers. I think I said that correctly, and wines from around the world. Tell us how this all started, and what are some of the greatest successes that you've had with this brand. So it all. I mean, you can trace it back. It's. Um... Basically, I was working, you know, living in kind of a suburb of the city, uh, working a job and just, I I mean, just, you know, you kind of reach this point where you're just like, what am I really doing? Like I'm I'm working this job and, and you just kind of are, you know, looking towards the next thing that you're going to purchase or whatever. And I don't know. I mean, it was probably like a mix of, you know, depression and and that, and just kind of analyzing life and everything. And just, you know, wasn't stuff that I wanted to do. Like, this is what I'm going to do. Like, I don't want to be, you know, when you, when you die and they're talking about your your funeral, it's a little morbid to think this way, but like, you don't want the, you don't want people to be like, Oh, he was, he was the best salesperson at company XYZ. (laughs) You know, you don't want that to be kind of like your, your legacy, you know what I mean? (laughs) Or whatever. So, you know, again, very morbid, but, um, so just kind of going along that train of thought and just, um, you know, my w- wife, who's my girlfriend at the time, she was going to go on a trip to uh, Seattle to visit a friend from high school. And she was going to go with other friends from high school. Uh, they all kind of wound up dropping out for one reason or another. Uh, I wasn't originally planning on going just because I didn't really want to go on like a high school uh, friends trip. Uh, so when they all dropped out, I was like, you know, I always wanted to go to Seattle, see if it was someplace that I wanted to live. And at that point, too, in my life, like I had been working for a company where I was traveling a lot but it wasn't to destinations you'd want to go to. It was to like middle of the nowhere locations because there were manufacturing plants there for the company that I was working with. Right. So I was just kind of like burnt out on travel just because all I had been traveling to is like little podunk towns and stuff like that. And, and so I went to Seattle, had a great time. Uh, and then we started traveling a little bit more and kind of got into traveling and started eating at different restaurants and, and got into, you know, eating, and focusing on that. And we went to uh, my wife, she had to go to Singapore for her job. Uh, she'd been there a couple of times and she had to go there for like two weeks. Uh, so I flew over f- for a week and she would be working during the day and I would just go around the city and, and sightsee and, and do a bunch of stuff. And one thing she had never done when she was there a few times was uh, the Marina Bay Sands Hotel. If you're not familiar, familiar with it, you can Google it, but looks like a surfboard on stilts and it's in the Marina Bay area of uh, Singapore. And they have at the one end, they have this famous infinity pool. So you're, you know, 30 stories high and there's like an infinity pool, but you have to stay at the hotel to have access to it. But on the one end, they have this observation deck and I had gotten into kind of like photography and stuff like that. So I always look when we're traveling, you know, different places that you could get different vantage points of like skylines and stuff like that. So we went up there and it was, you know, you couldn't really get a good picture of the skyline, like the safety glass that they had, had a bunch of fingerprints, scratches in it and all this stuff. And you couldn't get a high enough point to where you could get a clear shot over the safety glass if you're far enough back. So, you know, we kind of had that experience and I was like, man, I wish somebody would, you know, like actually have like a, a travel guide or, or something that said, you know, hey, you should not do this, even though this comes up on all kind of the travel websites or whatever, like this is something you should do somebody that had one that was like, no, don't do this. Go over here to, you know, this bar that's in this skyscraper because you're going to have a better vantage point or, or whatever. So that kind of sparked the idea of, you know, well, maybe I could do that. Like maybe I could write a travel guide. So I started writing like a travel guide. And when 
as I do with most things, just super far into it. So it was like getting like uh, census data and like weather data, best time to go there, stuff like that. History of like, you know, the city or whatever. And I wrote, wrote it out and I had basically one chapter uh, for each city and I was going to do like 12 you know, chapters in a book. Like if you were traveling and you could travel somewhere once a month, that was kind of how I had it formatted. I was getting to the point where I was going to start looking for independent like publicators or, you know, how to get it published and stuff. And I couldn't quite wrap my head around like, if it takes a year to get this published when it's done, like how much of this information is out of date, you know, and stuff like that. How do you keep it updated? How is it worthwhile for somebody to read this? And so then I had the idea of like, what if I just put it on online on a website? Mm. So I built out a website, <clears throat> built all these pages out. And as you do with stuff that you create, you kind of self audit and, and stand back every once in a while and look at it. And I was like, man, this is each page is pretty long. Like, I don't know if anybody's going to want to read like for 30 to 45 minutes, like through, you know, each city or whatever. So I was like, how do I, you know, make this more user friendly and pare it down and started whittling down different parts and stuff like that. And then kind of evolved into just focusing on the restaurants because that's how we were building all our trips was whatever restaurants we would go to, we'd do those kind of reservations first. And then we would fill in the sightseeing stuff for, you know, whatever you wanted to do kind of in a city um, because you could kind of do that whenever, you know, the hours of them being open is usually eight to 10 hours a day versus a restaurant where maybe it's only, you know, four or five hours, something like that. So you have a narrow window. So started focusing on, on that. And um, it just kind of evolved from there to just, you know, once we realized that's the stuff that we really enjoy, it was just kind of focusing on the food. And so originally it was just kind of pared down into favorite restaurants. And I had all this information about like the restaurant opening and different chefs that had run the restaurant and stuff like that. And then that kind of morphed into, after talking with the chef, um, basically like focusing on the chef themselves because they're what makes it your favorite restaurant was the experience that you had when they were there working and cooking. You might still like the restaurant if they leave, but it's not going to be the same experience. And if you think back to how many times where, you know, maybe you go to a restaurant and you're like, that restaurant was really good. And then you go back like six months later and you're like, it's just different. It's not the same. You know, a lot of times it's because somebody left, um, you know, mm. where they have, you know, different purveyor for ingredients and stuff like that. So started focusing on that and then started, you know, so I had these pages written up and I was like, well, what do you do for people that don't want to read? You know, they don't want to read <laughs> on the phone or yeah. like that because that's a big thing. Like people don't read yeah. as much as they used to. So I was like, well, what if I just do a podcast and just basically audio, you know, record everything in audio format so people could listen to it, you know, on the go or whatever. And so it became this kind of three pronged thing where there's a podcast, you know, for people that can listen to it if they don't want to read. There's a portion that people can read if they don't want to listen. And then there's Instagram so they can see visual aids and stuff like that. And it all just kind of became like proof of concept, almost like doing the podcast, you know, okay, people are actually listening to this and it's people that I don't know. So what's like the next step with that? And we tried a few different concepts and then it kind of morphed into, you know, all the research I was doing on different chefs, you would always find contradictory things. You know, they went to this school during you know this time period, but maybe another article would say it was later. Separate article would say they worked at this restaurant, you know, before they went to school and the other two said something different. So I was like, well, what if I could get a chef to come on the podcast and actually kind of explain their career in their own words, you know, so it wouldn't be taken out of context on them, but it would kind of set the record straight and reached out to some people and, and people were like, yeah, I'll do it. And, and just kind of been going ever since with that and, and interviewing chefs and it's been a lot of fun and, and uh, yeah, here we are. The podcast has a similar format to mine in that you know you, you do your research on these chefs and uh, essentially you're detailing their career and you so you, you're kind of giving people listening like the opportunity to go hey this is how this person's mind works this is like their background their approach to these things and then by listening to all of that and hearing the stories shared and etc it kind of re i mean it acts as an advertisement for that chef and their restaurant and everything like that and uh, it's obviously useful to you because it's, you know, adding to that kind of ongoing kind of database, so to speak, and constantly providing more info. Yeah. And I think for the, you know, I'm always thankful for anybody that agrees to do the podcast just because, I mean, you know, with chefs, they usually get one or two days off a week and it's like they're going to spend an hour or two hours out of their 
one day off a week to do a podcast that they've never heard of from some guy who randomly asked them, you know? So I'm always still amazed by people that say yes and, and want to do it. Um, but yeah, it does help, I think, build kind of a connection between, you know, maybe somebody was thinking about going to that restaurant and wasn't sure what the experience would be like or why they should go. And then they would hear that interview with the chef and be like, oh, okay, now I get kind of why the food is like that. Like, I'm going to go try it. I'd be more interested in trying it. And I think it helps build a connection with people that either had eaten there before, or maybe don't understand kind of why things are the way they are at that restaurant or, or the food that they create and stuff like that. And um, I think it really helps, you know, especially with everything being closed and COVID and everything and all mm. restaurants basically have to rebuild kind of their core customer base. Even if you didn't close, you still lost people who are, who are scared to eat out or scared to do takeout or, haven't been to restaurants in over a year or whatever. So you have to kind of get those people back again. And I think this, there's no perfect way to market a restaurant. You know, there's no perfect way to market anything. I don't think anymore. You have to do all these different things and they kind of pull into one. And I think it's just another avenue for people to come on and, and talk about their experiences and their, and the restaurants. And I, it seems to work. I mean, it seems to help the restaurants that, you know, we've been able to have on and chefs and stuff like that. And, and so it's been going good from at least that perspective. You mentioned, obviously, it's quite difficult in terms of, uh, you know, the uh, schedules of the chefs in terms of like arranging to find time and stuff. But like you said, they've been very accommodating. But is it just is it difficult to actually get them on the show? I mean, I've seen you've got a lot of episodes now. I think you've got at least two, 200. Is that right? Shows at this yeah, point? but not all not all of those are. I mean, we're in like the one fifties, but there's oh, okay. not all so, are chef interviews. Uh, we're probably at about eighteen to twenty chef interviews. Uh, we, we started doing those at the beginning of this year, but the podcast itself date back to January or uh, June twenty twenty. When I first started it, it was just basically I would do just solo episodes, just kind of recapping all the research that I did. Uh, and then we started a concept because me and my friend were pretty bored. Uh, there wasn't a whole <laughs> lot of new content or anything. So we started rewatching uh, Anthony Bourdain episodes and we were mm. doing a podcast food news kind of one. And, and that I eventually stopped doing just, it was a lot of work uh, to continuously kind of keep up with new things that were going on in kind of the industry with COVID and everything. And, but it, it, there was still value in it for me because it gave me more reps and recording and being comfortable behind a microphone and, and learning how you speak and different ways that you need to kind of change. You know, when you look back through your, your recording and you're doing editing and you're like, oh, I need to stop doing this. I need to stop doing this. I need to you know, change how I say this. And, and so it's all been beneficial. You know, maybe it doesn't behind the scenes, probably it's been more beneficial for some of that stuff. But in terms of actual chef interviews, we've done, I think about like 18 or so, so far that have been released. Um, and that's kind of started, like I said, about like January. I think the first one we did was like the last day of December or something, the very first one. So what's the, uh, I suppose the overall goal with this podcast? Obviously we know that, you know, like you said, you're trying to build this database, you're trying to inform people and, and kind of solve a, um, a problem that you yourself had faced and, you know, many others sort of face, but moving forward with this, you know, you've got your concept, you've got the format, you know, it's very clear what, what you're going with here, but like the saying the next couple of years, like, well, what do you want to do with this podcast? What's the overall goal? Uh, I definitely think it's continuing to focus on the chef interviews. I, I think that's the episodes that people enjoy the most. Um, I guess the goal would be just to grow it to the point where, you know, sure. Would we like to eventually have some sort of advertiser or something like that? Sure. But it's kind of weird because I wouldn't want to advertise anything that I don't believe in. Mm -hmm. So that gets kind of weird in a gray area, but yeah. Would we love to get to a point where it's like, maybe some revenue that we somehow generate like pays for uh, a dinner or we can donate some of that revenue to a food bank or something like that. Like that'd be great. Um, but you know, it's still at the stage for me, I think where if you're not having fun, don't do it. And it's still a lot of fun for me. Um, but I think really it's just growing it, uh, reaching more people uh, help, you know, and I think with the more people that we kind of reach and more listeners and stuff that we get, we'll be able to get bigger and bigger names, you know, chefs, people that probably recognize, you know, there'd be more incentive for those people who to come on the podcast who probably aren't interested in doing it right now because it's so small and they don't see the benefit, you know? Um, 
and you'd be able to get more people and talk to different you know people and get different perspectives and everything and i think that's kind of the way forward um it's just kind of growing it and the concept will be you know mainly the chef interviews and everything and and we'll still tinker with other concepts that we find interesting and everything but you know i enjoy doing it it's definitely you could say it's a passion project but i definitely want to see if i can make it you know my quote unquote career i guess um, but if it never gets there, that's okay. As long as I had fun doing it, but definitely want to make sure I give 110% to see if, see if it pans out, you know? Yeah. Same here. Same here, man. And just when, when you were talking, uh, you sort of mentioned something that annoys me too. I often get a lot of people say, Oh, cool. Yeah. You got a podcast or oh, who's been on it. Anyone I would know. And that alone is, is not an unreasonable question. But I always do find that a lot of people just seem disinterested as soon as you say that you haven't had any celebrities or whatever. And I just think that's a really dumb way to think, you know what I mean? Because number one, you can have a celebrity in your podcast. That doesn't mean it will be a good episode. Very true. It's all about being able to be a good conversationist. I've been extremely lucky. This is uh, was this? episode 99 of my podcast now. And I've always kind of adapted to my guests. So sometimes you know, if they talk more, I talk less. I just guide the conversation. If they talk less, I try and probe and push and stuff. And I feel like, you know, a lot of um, celebrities that I've seen tend to be quite quiet you know you really have to push them to get something out of them and sometimes that kind of puts me off the idea of having celebrities on my show to be honest I mean I, I would love to obviously it would help and everything but I don't actually think that it would necessarily do anything for the show um, I feel like the best thing you can always focus on is having good conversations producing good content you know what I mean like I that's always my focus and when I look back over you know close to a a hundred episodes the thing that i always think about is this was a good conversation this there's something beneficial in this there's something good in this so bringing it back to your podcast i feel it's even more important because you know you're providing a sort of, sort of a service so to speak and I, I feel like it's much more useful for you to have like this you know reviews of, of chefs that are lesser known but maybe restaurants that are more well-known or, or, you know, up and coming, that's more useful to your everyday kind of person that's shopping around and thinking where to go, you know, like, well, what's the point of interviewing like a, a Gordon Ramsay or, or something like that? Like everyone knows this person, they kind of know what to expect. And I, I don't know, there's not really much else that can really be said. I mean, I suppose you'd have to approach it differently. You know, I thought that's, that's the thing. It's the dilemma of if you had somebody that, you know, and I think about it every once in a while, it's like if you had somebody that everybody knows the name or, or you know, somebody who's famous, how would you approach that? Because their story has been told numerous times. Yeah. So you'd have to find something that maybe they don't talk about too much or, you know, and it's easier for some chefs uh, than others, like somebody like Gordon Ramsay, like, I don't like, what would you even, you know, he had his restaurants, he does a bunch of TV shows now, like, what would you even talk to? And what would you, you have to find that subject to that he would not only be interested in, mm. in talking, because as you know, from doing podcasts, sometimes when you touch on something, especially with chefs, like I've had one where he's super big into, he does paintings, there you go. but nobody ever yeah. really asked him about that in like the interviews that he did. And he just like lit up when we got to that point. He was like, oh, this guy knows that I do paintings and like, it's something that I'm like super into. And you can see kind of the person just light up and spark up and, and they're like, oh yeah. And so like, what would that be for like a Gordon Ramsay? Be that thing for him feel like it's just another press interview that I'm doing for whatever TV show that's coming yeah. out. Yeah, But what would also make it interesting to the listener that they would get value out of it, whether it's entertaining or they would learn something new about Gordon Ramsay if they're a big Gordon Ramsay fan or like two. So you're always kind of balancing these things about like, yeah, is it interesting for me? Would it be interesting for that person? And then the people that are listening, would it be interesting for them? And you're kind of always trying to figure out like, what's the best kind of way to piece all that together? Yeah, um, that's exactly the way I thought about it, actually. Um, when I think about having a celebrity on my show, 
you have to ask them some questions they've already been asked or, or, or something around that because, you know, of the nature of who they are, what they do and stuff. And people will want to hear that, but you're absolutely hundred percent right. Yeah. That's the way to get them is to get them talking about what they're passionate about, what they're interested in. Like if I was going after Gordon Ramsay, I think I would probably focus on trying to do a sort of career retrospective, um, get his kind of overall thoughts on things in general like where he was where he is and then as you say yeah get into the meat and bones like try and try and explore and I, th I think like sometimes you know for instance at the beginning of this podcast we have a little chat where, you know it, you see where it goes sometimes sometimes I've had episodes where that's literally all it's been you know I didn't even barely use the questions I had because the conversation just naturally happened and I think in an instance like that potentially you know, if you can, if you can get that out of that person, that's kind of perfect, really. But, uh, yeah. yeah. And I think, you know, going back to your point too, like there is, it is more beneficial, I think in a way to have people that you haven't heard of that aren't these big names because these big, the big names, like you said, that you've, you've heard their story. Uh, you can find a lot of information about them too, but you know, there is like, I think people forget with somebody like actors, right? Like, they get paid to convince you that they're somebody else for two hours or whatever. So you're not going to get that person. Like, I think people think, Oh, I'm going to get, you know, Leonardo DiCaprio from the Wolf of wall street. That's the episode that I'm listening to. It's like, no, you're getting, you're getting the guy who like morphs himself into all these different people over the course of his 15 year, 20 year career. So like, it's not going to be what you think it is. And I think that sometimes that leads to people being like a little disappointed, like, Oh, it wasn't as interesting as what I thought it was going to be. It's like, well, yeah, the guy gets paid to like make you believe he's somebody else. Like you, 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 you touched on something as well. Like I've seen so many interviews out there that infuriated me. Like, um, like for instance, I found some interviews online of like David Bowie getting interviewed back in the day. And the interviewers would just ask him like really stupid questions. And I'd be like, you've got this man, he's a megastar. You could ask him anything you want and you ask him like really just stupid stuff. And like you can see he's visibly annoyed and sometimes he'd just like laugh it off and other times he'd get annoyed. And I said, like, I don't blame the guy. Like this is so trash. And it's, it's like, if you're gonna do an interview, yeah, look, I mean, don't get me wrong. It's impossible to know what other people have asked that person. You can do a bit of research beforehand, but celebrities get interviewed like thousands of times. So it's impossible to not ask them something they've already been asked. But as you say, like you, if you go into it with the right mindset, of, yeah, I'm going to interview Leonardo DiCaprio, the actor, and focus on his mindset and his approach and and, and yeah, his passions and driving forces in life, that's going to be interesting and that's going to work and he's going to be motivated and we're probably going to get more out of it. Right. Um, you know, like I know, for instance, Joe Rogan's podcast is very polarizing. It gets different, you know, good positive and negative vibes. I get that. But his approach is fantastic. I, I've always really um, been inspired by that because I think that that's the ideal. You make your, your guests feel comfortable. You get a conversation going, you see where it goes. And in between that here and there, you can, you can ask them some of those questions. You, you could even ask them something that they've asked, been asked a thousand times and they'll give you that answer, but they'll be happy to do so. And you could probably expand upon that. You know what I mean? So like uh, you take, mm -hmm. yeah, Leonardo DiCaprio, let's say you're, you're talking and, and then, you know, the Wolf of Wall Street comes up and, and, and then you just like laugh about a particular thing that happened and be like, what was that like? And then, then he starts talking about it and then you ad lib. Now, that's something I've learned to do in the past, uh, I guess, 50 episodes is ad libbing and, and, and just paying attention to the conversation rather than, oh, I need to go from question one to question five and then see what happens, you know. So, uh, you know, something you can, you flow with. And it's easier to listen to. Yeah. And that all comfortable that you get as an interviewer and stuff like that. Yeah. Absolutely. But for, yeah, like I have questions, you know, that I do research beforehand, but yeah, I mean, they're, you, if you saw the amount of questions that I have, like, they're not even probably like maybe just over like a whole space. Like it's not that many. These are topics you can kind of touch on use it as a guideline, but if the person goes this direction on, you know, talking about culinary school, well, yeah, you, 
you just kind of run out that topic until you get to a point where like, okay, we covered it. Then you can kind of move on. So it's, it's definitely this kind of give and take kind of push pull that you're every interview, like you said, is different. You know, everybody's got a different personality. So it's not always the same thing. And you have to kind of figure out, like you said, do you, do you have to ask more questions? You have to probe more. Can you just let them run for like 10 minutes on a topic and like not even have to do anything and like just, but still be visually engaged, you know, cause like a lot of times it's like head nods and stuff like that or stuff that's easy to edit out um, on my side of the audio that way it's less work, but it's still, you still have the same kind of interview from their perspective too. Cause you're engaged visually with, with stuff like that. So yeah, it's definitely a delicate balance for, for each thing, each person. So talk us through your, uh, your research process. Like how, how do you actually prepare yourself for these interviews and, and what kind of research do you do? So you, so far, thankfully it's been Everybody I've had on the podcast is a place that I've actually eaten at myself. Hmm. And I'd like to keep that going as long as possible. I, I'm fully aware that eventually I'm going to run out of people that I've actually eaten at their restaurant that are people that I want to actually talk to. Hmm. You know, and, and I already know how I can do it where if I haven't eaten at that restaurant, and it, it won't be too different. Um, but it's a lot of just reading different interviews that they've done, if they've done any you know, for any kind of the major publications, it's a lot easier if it's somebody who's in New York or San Francisco with a bigger newspaper, like here in Columbus, a lot of the local chefs, you know, we only have a few different kind of publications, but they don't do anything too in depth. And even if there is an article that did go in depth, it's probably from three years ago or something like that. Like, it's not like they're every year they're doing like an in-depth piece on, you know, the chef or anything like that. So you definitely have to do a little bit more research and digging, you know, going through, seeing if they have a LinkedIn profile and kind of lining up different places that they worked. And then you can kind of cross-reference and, and do some Googling on, you know, if they've worked there, how long they were there, of doing a bunch of research through the internet and just different Google searches and, and stuff like that. And, you know, Instagram going through, you know, if they're active on Instagram, that usually helps too as well. But I think a lot of, a lot of chefs aren't the restaurant accounts are but the chefs themselves aren't super active or if they are it's so you won't offer them like their work history in that regard but you just have to explore every single avenue that you can to get as much information and then you just kind of have to sort through it and figure out what's interesting what's kind of boring you know where can does this transition into the next thing and stuff like that and kind of construct it that way but it's a lot of a lot of internet digging for sure so what do you think makes a good chef then? Like how, how do you judge that? Talk us through your sort of rating scale and all that stuff. Um, I mean, everybody, everybody's different, right? It's all subjective. The type of food that I like to eat is not going to be the same as the, somebody else. But in general, you know, the podcast is kind of structured around if you like eating similar stuff as to I do, and you can look at all the photos and stuff like that, well, then you'd probably like these experiences um, but if you're somebody who just likes, you know, bar food, like you're probably not going to get too much out of kind of the podcast because, you know, chefs that generally do bar food are just probably more cooks. So these are more people that I'm kind of talking to and, and gravitate towards are more kind of the, the chef owner types. So they own the restaurant, kind of run the restaurant too as well. And it's really just people that are passionate about it and, you know, are super creative too as well. I kind of view it food as kind of this disappearing art almost where you know your restaurant will have this dish and maybe it'll be super you know plated real well and super beautiful and everything but that dish will probably only be on the menu for three months you know because mm. it's probably related to seasonality so if it's on the summer months because it has summer ingredients or something like that so there is this kind of limited edition weirdness with it kind of like it's art it expires but it also kind of once it's on your plate and you consume it like it's gone so it kind of makes the whole food photography thing a little bit more interesting because it's like you're capturing a moment in time that that moment might never really come back again because they might never make that dish again or if they do make it it could be structured differently or plated differently or something like that so it's kind of like all these different factors that come into play when you're, when you good, was it cooked properly? How was the service? And these are all things that you kind of take into consideration. And if it was a great experience and an experience that you would recommend to somebody who asked you like, Hey, where should I go eat? You know, that's kind of the general rule of thumb for like, yeah, this is somebody I would want to talk to. And then you reach out to them and see if they want to do it. And, and usually 
probably one or two out of 10 times you get a response and somebody says like, yeah, I'd, I'd love to do it. And, and then you just kind of go from there. And um, what are your kind of thoughts on the influence of, of reviews of restaurants and sort of eating establishments in general on websites such as Glassdoor and Trustpilot and stuff like, what do you think about that? So, yeah, that's actually pretty interesting because I think a lot of people, it all kind of ties into almost like the newspaper industry in a way, because food critics were almost celebrities themselves for a while, especially like the New York Times. And now that people don't read the newspaper as much or subscribe to it because social media kind of replaced the news, there's definitely a less effect that a food critic in a major publication can have mm. on a restaurant. They're still big. Don't get me wrong. Like you talk to different chefs and they're like, yeah, if we didn't get into this publication like that, you know, we might not have survived for another six months. Like if you, there are some things like for a while it was Bon Appetit magazine. Like if you got into Bon Appetit and had a feature there, like you saw your business quadruple like overnight and you were golden. So I think it's, it's less of that now. Um, so I don't think, you know, food criticism, it's all subjective too. It's, it's like with music or comedy or anything else. It's, you know, does that person, you have to think of it as this person may or may not like that restaurant that's reviewing it. But do I find myself eating at similar establishments along those lines that they do? So if you don't, then like that food critic has no value really to you and, and what you're looking for. So, you know, that's why you can have different food critics because some might gravitate more towards, you know, ethnic food. Um, you know, maybe they're super big into Asian cuisine, you know, Chinese, Japanese, all that stuff. But maybe there's somebody else who's just really about super fine dining, elegant French cuisine. So you kind of have to, as with most things in life, you just kind of have to try and expose yourself to as much of it and then figure out what you really like and, and what you get value from and then go with that. So, I mean, the days of kind of, I think, you know, the New York times, it's still important, but it's just doesn't have the same kind of power that it used to in, in the nineties or the two thousands and social media kind of took over for a lot of that stuff. So you kind of almost have to gravitate towards like the person more so than maybe, you know, the criticism, I guess, or to find value in the criticism, you have to have something in common with kind of the person. I don't know. Do you, do you think it's quite as impactful as, as the media makes it sound, sound, do you know what I mean? So like, you know, if, if, a, if a restaurant is getting a bunch of negative reviews online, is it really that bad? Or, you know, is it just hearsay and, and, and the, you know, they can, they can sort of take that criticism if you, if you get where I'm, where I'm going with this. Yeah. It's tough because, you know, everybody has bad days. You know, you could have a day where the restaurant is just not in sync and people are just messing stuff up left and right. And that was the day that you went there and that sucks. And for you, that's always going to be a negative experience, but you know, maybe that was the one time out of the year that they just, everything just didn't work that night in the kitchen. You know what I mean? But on the kind of the flip side of it too, it's like with, you know, media criticism, like Yelp, like Yelp is always, I found Yelp weird because it's this platform where everybody can go and say whether or not they like the restaurant. So that part I understand, but why would you, from a new user perspective, why would you believe any of those people? You don't know mm -hmm. anything about them. There's a username and they publish and they said, I didn't like this, blah, 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 blah. Okay. But, but why didn't you like it? Yeah. Was it because the food was overcooked? Was it because the service was too slow? Was it because the sommelier never came back and see if you want another glass of wine? Was it uh, you showed up for your reservation at eight and they didn't seat you till 820? Like, what was the context of that situation? And I think that's where when you can provide more context for people, they can get an understanding of, okay, there were all these different factors at play. That's why this person didn't like that restaurant. Well, I probably wouldn't like that either. But would that happen to me? I don't know. I'm still kind of interested in going there. So I'm gonna give it a shot. Or maybe they're just like, oh, that person said, you know, they had all this stuff happen to them. That's way more than I would ever want to deal with. I wouldn't even want to deal with half of that. So I don't want to go there. So I think context is really important. I think that's something that's been lost in a lot of it is just people are, I like this. I hate this. This is good. This is bad. But nobody wants to say why. What are the reasons that you came to that conclusion? 
And that's kind of where I feel like, you know, we kind of differentiate ourselves as we're providing as much context as we can from our experience. So you can have kind of an informed opinion of this is likely the experience that you would have if you went there on your own. What's the biggest life lesson that you've learned so far? Um, biggest life lesson. Ooh, just in, you're talking in general. Whatever comes to mind, you know, I guess, I guess, I guess so. Yeah. But whatever comes to mind, you know, I would say just try. There's so many people that I I think don't want to try or try once and give up. Um, Effort is the only thing that you can control. There's so many other factors and everything that you want to do, whether it's a passion project or work, your job, your career, family, whatever. But the only thing that you can really control is the amount of effort that you put in on a daily basis. So, you know, as long as you feel like you did everything you could at the end of the day, um, you know, then that that's where I think everybody should be at. But for me, it's definitely, yeah, like I, you know, the me or can get better access to bigger name chefs for the podcast or whatever. But, but I could also, you know, I can try harder. I can reach out to more people than they do. I can wind up having more episodes. I could wind up having, you know, different people on the podcast than they've had. And, it's just, to me, it's always been about, you know, just giving a hundred percent effort. Cause that's the only thing that you can really control when it comes down to it. There's just so many other factors that can derail you. So as long as you do that, you, you should be at least in the top half of whatever it is that you're doing. And uh, as we draw things to a close for today, do you have any upcoming projects or maybe some final thoughts that you'd like to share with our listeners? Um, upcoming projects. We're definitely going to be doing a, a podcast review on the Anthony Bourdain uh, documentary. Uh, we're going to go see that this weekend. So um, skeptical on that uh, based on stuff that I've read and stuff that's come out. So I don't know how, how well that's going to go. Uh, I'm hoping I like it, but I'm, I'm a little worried that I'm, I'm not gonna. Um, so we'll see. But you know, still just interviewing chefs. Um, we've been fortunate enough to kind of the goal that I started out with was to have one chef interview every other week. And we've been on every week and release episodes pretty much every week since uh, like the beginning of June. So we're going to keep that going as long as we can. And um, other projects in the works, we, you might uh, be doing some different concepts and in, in partnership with the platform kind of exploring that um, like a Patreon for food platform that's in the works, but so hopefully that'll come to fruition and that'd be a cool avenue to, to meet new people and different creators and stuff like that. Um, but yeah, otherwise it's just trying to make the podcast as, as best as we can and, and provide as much valuable information and, and value to people who are listening, whether it's education, they learn something or uh, entertainment um, helps them get them through their day or gives them a new restaurant that they want to try or, or something like that. Um, you know, as long as one person, you know, I've always kind of said, as long as one person who's listening takes away something from that episode, then that episode's a success, regardless of how many total downloads it gets or total listens over 30 days or anything like that. At the end of the day, if you don't, don't like what you're, you know, don't enjoy doing the podcast, then, then there's no point. Cause there's a lot of people that I think start podcasts. I think it's like the average episode length for a podcast is like, they get to like seven and then they wind up quitting or something like that. Yeah. So if you don't, you know, and it's always, I see it on Reddit all the time. I'm like, how do I grow it? How, people aren't downloading it. It's like, you're on episode three. Like, yeah. it's, it's a grind. And if you don't like doing it, if you thought this was like, oh, I do a pod for money off of it. Like now for most of us, this is a, a hobby that we love doing and we're passionate about. And we sure we would love to make a career out of it. But I think for a lot of us, we're okay. If, if it doesn't get there, at least I had a cool hobby that I really enjoyed for however long it it ran. Yeah, I completely, completely agree. Um, I think that, yeah, I mean, I've, I've had to work very hard just to get a very, very small listener base listening to this. And to be honest, I, I'm blown away. Uh, I don't know if I've ever said this to my listeners, by the way. Um, but yeah, thank you for listening. Um, it's, it's, it blows my mind that there are people out there that take the time to sit and listen to these, whether it's having them on in the background or sometimes even just sitting and listening and really engaging with it. Like that's amazing. And that will always be much more important than having thousands of people listening and downloading. Like, I feel like as well, that stuff comes a lot later. I mean, 
Yeah, I've used this example a hundred million times, but I mean, Joe Rogan, I suppose he did like three, four hundred episodes before he even started to gain any traction. And he's a celebrity. So what does that tell right. you? Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? It's like, it takes time. And yeah, I don't think you should do anything in life if, uh, if you're doing it just to get numbers. And, you know, we have like this obsession with numbers these days. How many followers do you have? How many views do you get? Blah, 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 blah. It's like that stuff comes, but it takes time and everyone has a different trajectory and things click sometimes quicker for some people and later for other people. You know, I feel like even with me, like with this podcast, I still feel like it's uh, it's a learning progress. You know, um, I feel a lot more confident than I did in the first 20 episodes, but I learn something new every single time and I take something away from it every single time. And I think that that's just a good approach to have to content creation in general is to always just try to have the right mindset, try to focus on producing the best quality thing that you can produce and make that your goal. And yeah, people will listen. People will hear the message that you're trying to put out or the vibe that you're trying to put out or, or whatever, you know, I've had people comment on, on my podcast recently saying that they feel like my interview style has gotten better. It's easier to listen to blah, blah, blah. You know what I mean? Like that, that, that stuff does come. It's just, takes time and i think not a lot not a lot of people are as patient as they should be these days you know it's that instant gratification culture you know it's like calm down enjoy the ride the numbers will come just enjoy the process (laughs) but anyway oh yeah yeah absolutely i mean i i love being able to come on other people's podcasts uh i know i don't my kind of background in podcasts with food and everything doesn't always fit for a lot of people. I think there's a, there's a lot of people that are into kind of, it seems like uh, film reviews and, and horror movies and stuff I've seen that are always looking for guests, but so that's not really my scene, but whenever I'm able to kind of go on someone else's podcast and just have a conversation and not have to worry about any of the editing or anything like that, it's, it's, it's always fun for me. So I always love doing it whenever I get a chance to link up with people. Absolutely. Yeah, no, I mean, it's a, it's a pleasure to have had you. And uh, I just want to say a massive thank you for being on the show. And uh, yeah, I wish you all the best with the podcast and, and the brand Spoon Mob. Make sure everyone goes and checks this out and, and drops it a, a follow and has a little listen. Sounds like a fantastic project. And uh, for everyone listening to the show, I just want to say thank you for listening. And Let me know your thoughts. Let me know who you want to see on the show next time, what you want to hear on the show next time. Drop your thoughts in the comments below if you're on YouTube. Be safe, be well, and I'll see you in the next one.